Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, they had barely arrived in the game, on the scene, <laughs> via train. Uh, the last episode was basically 90% set up in a breakdown of the intro. We're, for all intents and purposes, beginning the plot of the game here and now. So the last thing we had heard was Barrett waving his arms and, and saying, Come on, newcomer, follow me, as Cloud hops off the train. The rest of the group uh, files into the reactor and down a long hallway, Cloud proceeds to follow them and he's accosted by a couple of guards in blue, our first battle of Final Fantasy VII. And very similar to Final Fantasy VI, we are presented with our main character as a kind of powerhouse here, where in a lot of the early games, you know, our characters are very weak at the beginning and have to fight like magical bunny rabbits and things in order to build up their strength. But both Terra and obviously here now Cloud is presented through gameplay as a character who can one-hit soldiers, not soldiers, we'll talk about that word in a minute, guards uh, of Shinra, two-on-one, no problem. So after it's made clear, well, with all the flipping and the taking on guards by himself, that Cloud is this badass. Uh, we move into the next room. We see the other members of the group we will come to learn is named Avalanche. Uh, setting up some electronic devices, it looks like, to break in here to this reactor. Character named Biggs questions Cloud, saying, you used to be in Soldier, right? And Jesse, the lone female in the group, comments that, aren't they the enemy? Yeah, I, I kind of dig that because it, it, it gives us exposition through dialogue uh, can feel really heavy-handed. It doesn't feel especially adroit here. It doesn't feel like the best way to do exposition through dialogue, but I, I think it's done well enough because presumably they've met before this, right? You know, they, they went over the plan, but they haven't gotten a chance to know each other yet. And, you know, if, if we're going to... We've got this high-stakes mission where we might all die. Uh, it might be nice to get to know the people you're going to die alongside. So I, I kind of dig this as a moment that could have been really heavy-handed. Yeah, there's a great part of the book I mentioned on the last episode from Dylan Holmes, A Mind Forever Voyaging, where he concedes that there's a lot of very simple, oftentimes you know, could be seen as clunky dialogue, but... Well, clunky, no. Not, that's the wrong word. It's it's just to the point and right. how that actually th does a real service to the story. And so I'll, I'll leave it there for now. We'll talk more about that as we go throughout. But again, in that book, I think he makes a really compelling argument for this type of dialogue writing. At this point, they get his name. They ask him for his name because he has not apparently yet given it to this group of rebels. And so you can, like in the other games, choose to name him whatever you want. We're going to call him Cloud, obviously. And, and it looks like that you know, no longer is, is an option. He's Cloud Strife in the zeitgeist of global pop culture. And so that's just who he sure. is. 
Do you think there will be an opportunity to name your heroes something else in the remake? I don't, just because they've, you know, all the voice acting has been right. there. Uh, and in fact, I, I think we've seen a kind of reinterpretation of this scene in some of the trailers because you see Biggs telling Jesse what his name is rather than asking. Uh, okay. So they're, they're kind of talking about him behind his back. Who's this new guy? Oh, his name is Cloud Strife. He used to be in Soldier. That would be a, that would be a heck of a thing for a future game or future technology. Right. It's almost scary. Like <laughs> if, if the machines can learn your name and, and call you by name and not have it be pre-scripted that way. So once you've given your name, of course, the proper thing to do would be to ask about everybody else. But Cloud makes it clear. He says, I don't care what your names are. Once this job's over, I'm out of here. Yeah. No interest in getting to know these people. Uh, and, and that's when our bombastic Barrett returns, breaks up all this silly, nonsensical talk, says, hey, we got to get to the North Mako reactor. Mako, well, we're probably going to say Mako a lot. I tend to say Mako. Officially, I do believe it is Mako. That's, again, how all the voice actors pronounce it. We've okay. just been calling it Mako for 25 years or something like whatever it is now. So, well, and sometimes game to game, some of those pronunciations change. I mean, Ramu versus Rama, right? Depending on which game you're playing, you know who's directing it. And it's just the nature of language, as we've talked about before, and and getting absolutist over how things should be pronounced. We'll talk about that again with some character names here in a minute, uh -huh, but. Uh -huh. Just a weird thing to do. Anyway, so Barrett then again kind of draws a line in the sand about where all of these characters are at at this particular moment in time, takes a look at Cloud, says, ex-soldier, huh? Don't trust you. And then you get to name Barrett. Again, I would assume probably not anymore. Barrett Wallace. We're not going to do a character study of Cloud Strife as we've done with a lot of other characters when we first meet them in these games because this entire sure. game is a character study of Cloud exactly. Strife. But as, as stop for a moment here. I think we've learned a lot about Barrett already. We talked about he's got a gun grafted on to his right arm. He's the first black main character in a Final Fantasy game. He's got a unique look to him, therefore sort of the square crop top it's a little bit like certain versions of mr t some might argue there's a bit too much stereotypical even in a condescending kind of way yeah uh he I, i'm not sure he's just the first black main character in final fantasy i think he's the first black character in final fantasy that's probably right yeah we talked about maybe general leo is meant to be black based upon his Amano artwork, but I'm not sure that's ever made explicit or clear. And I think it's worth taking a moment, if you want to, uh, being a couple white dudes, to talk about representation in pop culture. What do you think? Yeah, and, you know, we can't have that whole conversation in any one conversation, obviously. And we talked about it a bit with Six. But, sure. you know, this is a tricky one because I do think that... 
Barrett was, they knew very well that yeah. Barrett was their first black character. And because of that, I think they tried to write him a certain way. And yeah. through a historic lens, some of it can come off a little bit offensive. It really can. But I also think that you'd be hard-pressed to make the argument that Barrett Wallace is a shallow or poorly written character. Right. Or one who is perhaps irredeemable in, say, a Jar Jar Binks might be in terms of insensitivity. Right. Right? Like, there's definitely a bit of, like, okay... You saw a couple of 80s Mr. T movies. Right. <laughs> if your you know. first and thus far only black guy is also kind of a, a an 80s caricature, that that makes me a bit squirmy. And we'll talk uh, a little bit more about how when your only character of a particular group is, for example, not actually human, uh, Red 13. So, yeah, that it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel overwhelmingly bad, because he is a badass, because he is, uh, he's the leader of this rebel group. But that he's the one who cusses all the time, and he's the one who, it's not quite, you know, 80s jive, but it's kind of close. And that's not inherently bad, but when everybody else is pale-skinned, it, it feels like, oh, the one black guy had to talk like this and, and be angry and and yeah yeah i i think the best thing that undercuts that and we'll meet her in a little while but is his relationship with marlene right and absolutely you know his fatherness that he is the freedom fighter yes and he's the the guy who's angry at the man uh but he's also in that way kind of a moral center of this in for both good and bad he is the moral center of the first chapters of this game, where uh, of this story even, where most of the characters we meet are selfishly motivated. And we'll come to learn, so is Barrett for a lot of this. There's a personal hate toward the Shinra. As we're about to learn, he's the one who pushes the agenda of environmentalism, of saving the planet, of... You know, he is the freedom fighter, as I said. He's and he's out there doing something about it. And we'll get into here in just a little while whether or not this is the right way to go. But I think that, yeah, if he remained a shallow character, some of the insensitivity would be a lot, lot worse. Uh, and as right. it turns out, you know, the arc he goes on, he is a warrior of light and he is a hero in this story. And whatever you know we're not meant to look down on barrett for speaking this way i, I think there's just a bit of a, a lack of understanding here probably and and probably two steps of of lacks of understanding there are americans who make art who do a worse job of depicting this type of thing than japanese people who you know it's going to be different no, no matter how you look at it there's just going to be a different relation to all of those cultural issues i often think about when I'm, when I'm thinking about this issue is which identifying markers of the character matter to the character like which ones are most important so for example i think into the spider-verse shows us very clearly that spider-man does not have to be 
a straight white kid probably needs to be from New York, but not necessarily. There can be versions that aren't, but being from the Bronx, I think, is, is pretty central to his character. But he doesn't have to be a boy. He does not have to be white. I think Miles Morales shows pretty clearly that it would make as much sense for a brown kid to be Spider-Man. And I think uh, Gwen Stacy shows that it would make as much sense for a girl to be Spider-Man. And I really, I, I think this is an interesting exercise to take because for most characters, their core identities are less about their sex, their gender, their skin color, uh, and more about where they're from and what shaped them. So Superman, he's an alien, but he also looks like a, a white kid. It didn't have to be. Batman, on the other hand, comes from old money in the eastern United States, might need to be a white dude, uh, just right. because his character... The reason he is be able to become Batman is as much about his privilege as anything else. He's suffered this great tragedy, and a lot of us have suffered tragedies, but most of us don't then have the resources to become Batman. So, I mean, I, I'm sure you could tell that story with a, a character who is not a white male, but I think it is actually part of his character, whereas others it's not. I think Kingpin being cast uh, as Michael Clark Duncan in that Ben Affleck Daredevil movie that I actually enjoyed was was cool because it didn't matter. His uh, skin right. color didn't, was not core to the character. So in this case, with Barrett, I'm going to make you answer the hard question, is his skin color core to his character? Could he have been uh, pale-skinned? I believe it is important. I, I think you could not properly write this character, honestly, and and have it be a white guy. In fact, I, I think one of the things you mentioned him being the leader of the group, and I, I think that's important that he's put in a position of power here. But uh, I do think that it's also another way for him to stand out and feel very isolated and alone in this world that he feels has abandoned him. And as a stand in, as a representative for the oppressed for the downtrodden, for the people that the giant corporation has wiped aside without even caring to think about their names or faces. I think at the very least, Barrett Wallace has to be a person of color in order to fully and, and best represent that, the, the oppression of the little guy and, and the anger and retribution that comes with a lifetime of being stepped on. Sure. As we've already said, it is potentially problematic to have your your angry guy who uh, who's fighting the man be your only black guy, possibly in this entire world. Are there any background characters who yeah, are... I, we'll, we'll keep our eyes out for them, but that's okay. also strange. Yeah. You're like, what... <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> so that's potentially problematic, but I have another question. You said that he should probably be uh, a person of color because that helps to to underscore the the fight in the empire. Does that mean do you, do you think Cloud and Aerith and Tifa are white people? Because I was under the impression that they were meant to be well, and you know the distinction between what does and does not count as a particular ethnicity is very muddy. Sure. But but I always thought Cloud was meant to be a Japanese guy. 
or at least a, a mix of those two. That's that's kind of how I've thought of most of the main characters in Final Fantasy. Honestly, they all look sure. like a mix of European and Asian, which is kind of what Final Fantasy is. Sure. So yeah, I don't. I yeah, I don't think the Cloud is a white guy though. In most renderings, he's got pretty darn pale skin. So sure. And but again, and like there are Hispanic people with really pale skin. That doesn't mean that you're white. Like this is a very difficult, you know, especially when they're fiction right. thing to nail down. Even in real life, it's difficult to nail down exactly what we mean when we use these terms. Well, that's because ethnicity is. I mean, we get we can get into genetics and phenotype, and we can get into nationality and heritage and culture, and it's all like like I said, it's muddy. And I don't think that we should spend too much time trying to lo- draw lines between people. That's you know, that's not what Final Fantasy is about. That's right. not what we're about. Right. But I do think it is an interesting question to wonder about how do we, in art. How do we decide what our characters look like and and how much does it matter? It matters a lot less to me because as a straight white guy, I have seen heroes who look like me and, and have a very similar background to me since I was very little. But and, and, so, and it doesn't bother me at all when heroes are not those things because I've got plenty of heroes who look like me and I feel like I can identify with people who don't share my skin color, my background, my gender, my sex, and so on. But if you have never seen a Final Fantasy character who maybe looks more like you or sounds more like you, I think it's really cool then that Barrett might be a step in that direction for some people. I just think it's also a little bit, uh, it, it almost undercuts that message a bit to have him talk kind of like an 80s caricature. Again, the character is much deeper than that, but but it undercuts it just a bit. Yeah, and then we'll get to have this whole conversation all over again when we get to Red 13. But let's right. move along just a little bit more in the plot here. There's this great moment after all of this interaction, and Barrett says he doesn't trust Cloud, uh, where they all run off, and the camera sweeps down to... It had been this overhead shot, and then again, we're doing this thing that never could have been done in the games before, the cinematic presentation of Final Fantasy VII. And this is kind of an iconic moment, too. It's not exactly the box art, but it's meant to be basically that moment. The camera swoops down beneath Cloud. Now it's underneath him, as opposed to over his head, and looking up at what he's looking up at, which is this giant reactor that we now know we're on our, our way to blow up here. And and the shot of him looking up at the reactor is iconic. And yeah. again, the swooping of the camera gives you this, like, oh my God, this is the most amazing visual experience video games have ever had. It, it's funny to look back. and 3D graphics really, that are so little, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that little bit. And then, you know, the the group proceeds and Barrett starts to give the mission statement of avalanche turning to cloud and saying it's the lifeblood of this planet talking about the mako that's being churned up in this reactor he said but shinra keeps sucking the blood out with these weird machines which is an interesting metaphor to use here shinra as vampires of the planet 
It also parallels Final Fantasy V, Sid's machines uh, amplifying the power of the crystals to make life easier. And we're going to get the, uh, the, the kaiju parallels later on. So yeah, I, I like that we've seen, as we've mentioned before, that we've seen this environmental message paralleled throughout Final Fantasy. And then in this one, it's very deliberate. So in the first one, we're restoring balance by res, uh, you know killing off the fiends, uh, which are draining the, uh, the energy from the crystals that keep balance in the world, right? And in 5, as I just mentioned, Sid has created these machines that then shatter the crystals, uh, which is all an apl- a plot by X-Death to free himself and, and uh, take over the combined worlds. So yeah, there, there's a very distinct message off and on throughout Final Fantasy of we got to take care of our planet. And in this one, the evil empire is literally sucking the life from the planet. Yeah, and it's the first time our characters actually give voice to it, right? We kind of have to read between the lines and all the other games or decipher for ourselves. Like, yeah, that's what we should do. But here, Barrett just comes right out and says it. Uh, and, and then this is obviously also a very specific parallel to how we get oil by drilling right. into the planet. And they're not subtle about that. The, <laughs> the comparisons to oil and fossil fuels will be all over this and you know cloud responds in a way i think a lot of gamers might a lot of people who just want to watch a movie or a show or play a video game he says i'm not here for a lecture yeah i'm here to bust heads and get out of here yeah and that might be you know even a stand-in for the video game world at that moment you know I'm I'm here to play a video game. I'm not here for your lecture, but it's very clear we're going to get one. Oh, yes. (laughs) But but I do find this compelling the way Cloud, obviously, and we'll find out there are deeper and deeper reasons why it's the case. But it's just very dismissive here. He's he's a mercenary. He's here to do a job. Uh, They get onto an elevator to take them deeper into the reactor. Barrett reiterates. Cloud says, hey, look, this isn't my problem. Barrett gives one of the most memorable lines of dialogue. Very simple again, but to the point where he just says, the planet's dying, Cloud. Yeah, it, so, so it is his problem. It's, it's everyone's problem. Right. And, uh, you know, Cloud's just not getting it. Barrett's super pissed. But I think it's funny. It's like, dude, you hired the mercenary. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How do you think this is going to go? get off of the elevator and follow a long platform over this kind of sea of green mist. You can see the Mako uh, beneath them now, and it's very eerie. And this is, fittingly, where you get your first piece of materia, the restore materia, just kind of sitting there on the platform. 
And we'll get into what materia is and all of that here in just a little bit. But let's continue here. They get to the end of the platform. This is apparently the uh, point of destruction that will bring the whole place down. Barrett, in order to test you know, how much he means it, he makes Cloud set the bomb. Is that to test his loyalty to the job? Because he's not going to be loyal to Avalanche. He's a mercenary. But his loyalty right. to the job, maybe? I think so. Uh, maybe even just so Barrett can keep an eye out. Uh, but yeah, I, I like it. I don't know exactly what the motives are, but and that's something we've seen in the remake is still very much a thing. Barrett saying, no, you've got to do this. It does put, if, if Cloud is the insert for us, it does put us in a position where we are the one making the decision, right? Like we, we, we talked about the player as the hand of fate. Uh, we talked about in Final Fantasy VI, you are one of the light warriors. So this is, in a way, it's the game or Barrett saying, you are in on this and and you have to decide whether or not you're going to participate in the inciting incident, Mr. Video Game Player, who might not care about the dying planet. Absolutely. And, you know, we watched those Resonant Arc videos where I think he did a really good job of explaining how Cloud being the avatar for the player in this world is really effective at selling a lot of the story beats. And I think you're absolutely right that this is one of them, that it's literally now in our hands to decide to blow up this reactor. And we'll get into the moral consequences of that here in just a little bit. Um, but I think this game and this character are, you know, some of the best examples of being able to walk that line where Cloud very clearly has his own personality. So he's not Chrono. But he is, we are him. And there's a lot of ways in which that gets driven home. And, and we'll talk about a few more of them that are coming up here pretty quickly. But yeah, it's put into our hands. So you go to set the bomb. And our first super effing weird thing happens. Here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> are there going to be a lot of these super weird things happening? There are. Beyond the just unusualness of the setting of this game and all the things there are to look at and Mako and reactors and the planet and Shinra and this guy with a gun on his arm. So there's been plenty of weird stuff. But the first hint at the deeper fantasy plot at play here comes in this moment when Cloud goes to set the bomb. The screen goes red. There's a dissonant ringing sound, like a ringing in your ears. Mm -hmm. And then we just get text on the screen. Watch out. This isn't just a reactor. Hmm. Who said that? Right. <laughs> um, I don't want to do this too much, but in the trailers for the remake, <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> it, it looks like... Um, he sees a, a single black feather fall, and on the piano, there's a little bit of the dark Sephiroth music, uh -huh. which obviously sells this point a bit more. In your original playthrough, though, you would have no idea other than, oh, Cloud just wigged out a bit and right. heard a voice. That's all you right. know. And, and the voice seems to be helping. Like, the voice seems to be uh, watching out for us. Right. 
which is... And before there was any voice acting, you would have no way of even discerning if this was a, a male or female or right. nothing. Is it, cloud, Just, is it Cloud's voice? Is he having an insight? Right? We have no idea what this means. Right. But he shakes the cobwebs quickly because having set the bomb, they are now being attacked by the Scorpion Guard. Yay! The, the famous first boss fight that very closely parallels Welk in Final Fantasy VI. Right. It's got a... But special then, moment when you can't attack it and you've got to wait or you'll you'll get your your Katukas booted. What? That's right. Katukas booted, yes. Uh, also uh the Mist Dragon of Final Fantasy 4 uh has right. a similar has a similar thing. And the ant line of 5, but that's not an intro monster. Also this one's a robot. It's a robot scorpion. Right. There's <laughs> also that. Just to be clear. <laughs> Kind of a, a steampunky one too. At that, it, like a lot of this stuff exists again, right in that in between space of like steampunk, cyberpunk, diesel punk, you know, all that stuff. So once you defeat the guard scorpion, you set the bomb. So you've got a timed thing. You've got a timed escape now. You've got to get out of there in twenty minutes. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, you got to look around a little bit. Make sure you save Jesse on the way out. She's stuck. Uh, she will get out anyway, but she'll like you more. It's one of those things. Um, I don't, we'll talk about the point system and Cloud and the girls here in just a minute, but keep right. that in mind. Right. Uh, I don't want to do that while we're escaping here. So um, just as the party leaves the scene, we transition to another brief FMV, these videos that we had never seen in games before, where all of a sudden the graphics are a little bit punchier. Things start moving. You see the fire from an overhead shot that you've set and the explosion of the reactor. Cloud saves Jesse one more time as the camera zooms out and you get this scope shot of this big thing that you've just done. And you can see again from the side, as we've seen the giant city, the enormity of the thing you just blew up. One of the nine reactors gone. Let me ask you, what do you think of these transitions between uh, the full motion videos and the the game graphics? Because the game graphics are very blocky. They look like a version of Lego, right? They, it's still cool. It's 3D. We'd never seen anything quite like this before. But the uh, CG is is more impressive. They don't quite look human. But they look more like uh, computer graphics anime characters. I remember at the time thinking that it, it didn't feel that jarring to go between game gameplay graphics and cinematic graphics. But watching it again recently uh, so that we could do the podcast, I found it more jarring. What did you think? Yeah, they. I mean, this is one of those things when people talked about how this game hasn't aged that well. I think that's one of the things they're talking about. There is a more noticeable difference through a historic lens between the standard graphics and, and these little movies. For me, just putting myself back in the mind frame of where we were when we first played this, I always thought of these little movies as rewards for... Hmm progressing in the game just like you would gain experience or a new level or new magic abilities you get a little movie of the story so that the graphics were such a big punch up i always just thought was kind of the point it, it was a reward for playing the game and so for me it's like yeah there is a big difference and, and it can be a little bit 
jarring, but I'm actually struck by how smooth some of them are. And you've got to look at it through a historical lens. It's like listening to an old Beatles record on vinyl and being weirded out because there's all these pops and scratches. But that's you know, part of the experience. So it's weird to me when people say it hasn't aged well, when I think it's really more about adjusting your perspective to recognize they were taking this giant leap forward and sometimes they didn't get all the way there, but they were still moving the envelope so much farther forward that it kind of doesn't matter. So the team sets another smaller explosion to mask their escape, and there's kind of a big fire behind them, kind of a funny scene where everybody piles out of the big fire they just made. Wedge comes running out with his pants on fire, as you'd expect. <laughs> Poor Wedge. Yeah. The team splits up, uh, agrees to meet to rendezvous, as you do, at the Sector 8 station. And as Cloud moves to the next street over, we get a pan down from the top of the screen. And if you're paying very close attention, you'll realize, hey, we've been on this street before. There's a Loveless poster. There's panicked people walking all around the streets. And there's a dark alleyway. And standing in the middle of the road, a familiar looking girl in pink. She's introduced as Flower Girl. And she says to Cloud, excuse me, what happened? Of course, all these people are running around panicked because there was just a giant explosion. Right. And this is another thing where Cloud now, we get to decide a bit of his personality for him. You get a choice here. Now, in Final Fantasy VI, we get one choice, the choice. But throughout this game, I was saying earlier, you know, there, there's a hidden point system that you don't necessarily know about with Cloud where you can earn favor with either, and in Jesse is one of them you can earn favor with, but also Aerith, Tifa, Barrett, and Yuffie. <laughs> right, um, right. And there are a lot of interesting comments. I, I think I, I want to talk about Cloud's relationship thoughts and and even potential sexuality in the next episode probably because there's some really interesting moments to talk about there but yeah just for now let's let's know that there's this little hidden mini game where depending on what you say to each of these characters it will influence cloud's relationship with them and so your choices here are you better get out of here or nothing happened Hey, dot, dot, dot. Now, if you say you better get out of here, she'll just bounce. She'll just be like, all right. <laughs> See you. Sure, sure. Uh, but then you'll miss one of the most famous moments in Final Fantasy history. Yeah. If you say nothing, hey, Cloud will follow up with, don't see many flowers around here. It's a dark, grimy dirty city it is it's it's almost underworld in a way uh and in some some of it is literally we will find out underneath other parts right 
And so she's, she offers to then sell one to you for one gill. Essentially the absolute smallest measure of, of money that exists in a Final Fantasy game. And you better buy it. Right, right, right. Buy the flower. Buy the flower. And so Cloud then after that moves on. That's it. That's the entire interaction. She goes on her way. He goes on his way. Uh, he's kind of, you know, trying to look innocent. <laughs> <laughs> With a giant sword on his back. Right. Hurry and look innocent. He moves out onto that giant courtyard we saw in the opening shot underneath the clock. This very art deco building. These huge structures. Modern yet still old. Sort of a 1920s style architecture. And... We get a little bit of a cyberpunk trope here because there are pervasive ads in this area. There are billboards and neon signs, and they're all positioned in such a way that we can't really see what they're supposed to be advertising, which I think is really mm-hmm. clever. Yeah, it, it is fun sometimes when you're writing and you're, and you're world building to decide is you know is this in our world or in a different world or in a very similar world so what kind of things would be sold you know what are the brands are your characters drinking soda or are they drinking coke right or are they drinking something that you've made up entirely yeah it would be interesting to know what those advertisements are but it's kind of clever that they didn't show us except for loveless we know loveless is coming soon the trailer is going to come out any day now right right this is another point that I don't want to overdo, but it's the first time I've brought it up. But it's stuff like this that makes me not at all surprised that the remake is the first part of it's going to just be Midgar. Because there's all this stuff you can flesh out. You can turn all of these advertisements into real products. And then you can go and find those shops if you want. And, and I expect there to be a lot of that. A lot more of just exploring the city. Because there are so many hints in here of so much more going on that in the original game you just don't get to interact with. It, it gets to be cool world building that you go, oh man, there's so much more there, but you never get to go and, and search it out. And I think in the remake you'll get to search out a lot of it. In this area, there's also a whole bunch of graffiti. Again, the, this the city is not in great right. shape. <laughs> well, and we're in the uh, quote-unquote bad part of town. Right. There's no uh, broken window laws here. So, sprayed on the wall says, don't be fooled by Shinra. Mako energy doesn't last forever. Mako is the planet's life source. The end is in sight. Protectors of the planet, Avalanche. Heck yeah. A little bit intense, but all right. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot to write for graffiti, too. Usually graffiti is like two or three words. Really, really fleshed out message there, but you got to appreciate that. So Cloud walks by all of this and onto a more regular-looking block filled with some apartments. And at this point, he's found out. He's surrounded by Shinra guards. And this is another thing that's interesting, a choice you can make. You can either choose to fight each one of these guards as they approach you or choose not to run away. Literally, literally the choice is fight or later. <laughs> Which I think helps us sell on you know, this moral ambiguity we've got with Cloud here. Like, what does he want? What are his motivations? Is he a fighter or is he a guy that just beats, you know, wins because he can? 
whether you choose to fight everybody off or run away, eventually Cloud will be overwhelmed. There's just too many, so he will leap off of the platform and onto a train because he's a badass. Yes, he is. So at this point, we transition to the inside of the train. The group is all there. Wedge is worried about Cloud. Biggs thinks maybe he got killed. Uh, but Barrett, in, again, a moment of clarity here. We know he doesn't like Cloud. We know he's bombastic. And we might start to reach the conclusion that maybe he's a bit of a dullard. Maybe he's a dope uh, meathead. He says, no way. Look, I, I may not like the guy. Uh, I, I may be in charge here. My ego, I may be being a bit defensive of. Ain't no way Cloud's dead. Like, right. yeah, come on. <laughs> he knows how good he well, is. If, game <laughs> recognize game, baby. I think at the very least, uh, it is implied that, that soldiers are the best of the best. Uh, and if Cloud is a former soldier, then there's no way that he's been taken out if, if the rest of these ragtag rebels have survived. I think that's part of what uh, Barrett's getting at here. Absolutely. He then proceeds to call the rest of the group screw-ups. <laughs> nice. Uh, which I think, you know, again, sells that point. He's after a mission. He's very irritable. Uh, but then you hear a banging on the door. Cloud does a backflip into the train, you know. Showing off again. My goodness. He even, you know, Barrett says, what are you causing a scene for? And Cloud goes, no big scene, man. It's just what I always do. <laughs> and in response to that, we get our first ever Final Fantasy swear. Barrett simply responds, and pound sign, dollar sign, at. It's a Grolix. It was the first time I'd ever seen this. I had to have you explain to me what was happening. Really? Yeah. I I didn't I did not remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for those not in the know, when characters in these Sunday funnies would swear they would replace with a string of symbols that are not letters. Uh, and you can use those symbols to sort of make letters, like you can use at dollar sign dollar sign to spell the word ass if you really want to. But the name for that string of typographical symbols used in place of an obscenity is called a grolix. And we have a couple of characters who will use them uh, throughout the game. And it's, it's also interesting, too, because a lot of times you get to be a little bit interpretive about exactly what <laughs> swear was used here, especially one like this that's completely on its own. It's just a one swear response to Cloud being a big shot. If I had to guess, I'd say shit <laughs> could <laughs> was be. what he just said could be yeah that'd be my guess yeah. but you can make it kind of whatever you want which i think is interesting and that goes into our our big theme about them playing in a new sandbox here now that they're on playstation they can swear and they're going to yeah but sometimes they're going to replace it with <laughs> i guess they always replace it don't they yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. the big ones yeah okay so he follows that up by saying, Cloud, you don't give a damn about no one but yourself, to which Cloud shrugs and says, you were worried. He's teasing Barrett. You, you were worried about me. Yeah. I, one of the reasons I like this is because we tend to think of Cloud as the stoic badass. That is his character. But as you and I have discussed on this podcast, 
that's kind of who he is, but it's also kind of not. He's also got this side of him that is a little goofier, a little more playful. And so I like that he's poking at Barrett here. Yeah. And the rest of the team just loves him. They're just fawning over Cloud at this point. And Jesse comes up and cleans some smudge off of his face and thanks him for saving her during the reactor mission. At this point, we get an announcement from the train and something interesting happens. I don't know that we've ever been put at an exact moment in time in a Final Fantasy game. We're told that the last stop is the train graveyard, which is some foreshadowing. Uh huh. Kind of parallels the uh, ship graveyard of Final Fantasy V. Absolutely. And that last stop is at 12.23 a.m. Midgar Standard Time. Nice. Shinra's got their own time zone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we get a lot of information there, including what you just said. They have their own time zone. It's very late <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. right now. You know, we're, we're, we're getting some interesting, but I, I love that little nugget that Midgar has its own time zone. And that's an interesting thing to just think about and conceive, but we have to keep moving on. We also get our first taste here that our heroes are not seen as heroes. And the conductor of this train Gives this great line about, oh, man, this is why I hate the last train. Who boy. Yep. Because <laughs> all these scary people get on. We're the scary people. We are. And there's a man that you can talk to who's reading the paper. And he says, did you see the headline in the Shinra Times? Sure. Sure. Very objective newspaper. That would be like reading the, uh, you know, the Conoco Times or, or the McDonald's Times. There are a lot of parallels to the authoritarian sort of sci-fi that was especially popular in books in the 80s or mm-hmm. uh, before that stuff you know obviously it's like 1984 or brave new world uh, you see it in v for vendetta is a really good example and a common theme in all of those is control over the media right right and so there's that character in v for vendetta who's the news anchor man who mm-hmm. goes on and shouts and screams and you know, drives and talks about V being a terrorist. And so you'll right. see what this man says here is the terrorists that bombed the number one reactor are based somewhere in the slums. He's talking about us as terrorists. Right. Something that no previous Final Fantasy hero would have been confused for. Right, right. And it it's t- in controlling the news and controlling the media, they also control definitions, right? So uh, war is peace. Right. We have always been at war with East Asia. Promiscuity is your civic duty to hearken back to some of those old uh, anti or those old anti-utopian novels. So, yeah, first of all, that they've got the newspaper out on this story already is pretty damn impressive. And second, that they are taking control of the narrative and and taking control of definitions. Just a classic speech and debate move, if nothing else. Yeah. And there will be plenty more of that. Uh, You can kind of meander around here with Cloud. You can get into a conversation about Wedge, who's worried that he's always going to be a sidekick. And you can either choose to be nice to him or choose to be kind of a prick. Uh, (laughs) Be nice. Even in video games, be nice. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And and when I do these, I always try to be that way with with these characters and so as i make decisions coming up as we do the podcast you'll see that (laughs) oh i have a 
I have a question for you. No. Do you think perhaps that some people view Cloud as kind of a stoic jerk more than kind of the goofy friendly guy is because they chose more of the the asshole responses than the nice guy responses maybe they're stoic jerks could be maybe maybe i don't want to go pigeonholing video game players because i was an m1 but some of them kind of are or at least try to be could be some projection there at this point you you get this fun little mini scene that i really like where jesse invites you to come over and take a look at the map on the train she says I like this kind of stuff. Bombs and monitors. <laughs> Any punk band or new wave looking for a band name or an album title? Bombs and monitors. Sounds like a Scott Pilgrim thing. Yeah. Bombs and monitors. There's another one coming quite a bit later. There's a, a phrase in this game that I'm like, man, I would listen to that band. Well, we'll get there later, but... Uh, you, you go up with Cloud and you take a look at this kind of green print outline of the city of Midgar. And this is where we get the explanation for how the city operates. And Jesse explains that there's a top plate that's about 50 meters above the ground and a main pillar that supports all of these plates in the center. That Each of these towns, she says, used to have a name, but now nobody in Midgar remembers what they are. And they're all just numbered sectors now, one through nine. Taking away somebody's name and giving them a number instead is classic authoritarianism. Very creepy and and well done to this game. So as the train continues to spiral down the mid-pillar, there are ID checkpoints along the way to make sure that not too many of the pores sneak their way up to where the real people get to live, I guess. Yeah, I don't want those dirty people up here in our nice, clean tower. This is what I thought about when I was watching that film, In Time, starring Justin Timberlake, of all people. It's really good. And once he starts to get a bit more of the time that is used as currency in that story, he has to go through all of these checkpoints to get to where all of the rich people live because... All the people with less time have been totally sectioned off. And so, again, a a common trope of when you've separated the the powerful from the powerless, you can start to literally separate them. Jesse also remarks here that during these ID checkpoints, the lights go out. And when that happens, you never know what kind of creeps will come out. There's something super ironic about the ID checkpoint being a very dangerous time. Before you get beneath the plates, Barrett says, you can see the surface now, but this city don't have no day or night. If that plate weren't there, we could see the sky. All the people living in poverty literally can't see the sky ever in this place. And then Cloud gets all poetic all of a sudden. He says, a floating city. It's pretty unsettling scenery. Barrett's kind of taken aback by that. Go, man, you just full of surprises. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the soul of a poet and the sword of a mercenary. Yeah. And then Barrett gives this really interesting line, too. He talks about the upper world, a yeah. city on a plate. 
it's because of that. And then we get another Growlix. He says, it's because of that Growlix pizza. The people underneath are suffering. This is something I missed a little bit as a kid. And you don't need to necessarily get it, but pizza is a slang for the plates. Right. And that's something that's really useful in world building and, again, creating a believable setting. People are going to have their own slang for different things. They're not going to call everything by its exact name. Nobody talks that way. Right. And more typically, the people who have things, who have means, will want to, not not always, but in your world building, they tend to be the ones who speak what is considered the correct way. Uh, and so anybody who doesn't might be considered uneducated. People who talk in a dialect that is not the dialect of the upper crust or of those on the surface, as opposed to those living underneath. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to, again, draw some of those lines. Barrett mentions, of course, that because all of these people are li- literally living underneath the rich people, the city below is full of polluted air. It's disgusting down there. Cloud, for a moment, feigns ignorance and says, why doesn't everyone just move on to the plate? Of course, that pisses off Barrett. It's just probably because they ain't got no money. Or maybe because they love their land, no matter how polluted it gets. Sure. If you've grown up in the same house your whole life. Exactly. And then one of my favorite lines of dialogue in the history of Final Fantasy. This actually used to be a quote on my Facebook page when I first set up my Facebook page. (laughs) Whatever year that was, back in 2006. Cloud says, no, I get it. No one lives in the slums because they want to. It's like this train. It can't run anywhere except where its rails take it. I feel like that's a profound comment on economic mobility. The American dream, even though there's no America in this story, the concept of, oh, you've got mobility. Look, you're on a train. You're moving. Mm -hmm. But the, the people in the slums, they're shuffling around. And it's, it's a brutal line about the concept of economic mobility, especially when there's so much power in the hands of the incredibly rich and powerful. It's also potentially back to that, uh, that trope we've talked about, uh, free will versus fate, right? If you're a train, you can't jump the tracks. Because if you do, you crash, right? So right. your, your fate is to go from station A to station B to station C. And the Final Fantasy games are frequently about defying that fate. You know, we are fated to be in a 1,000-year time loop where the fiends of earth, air, water, and fire drain the planet until chaos comes. Or we are, we are fated to be dark nights. Or we are fated to lose out to a giant death tree. You know, right up until we're not. You know, we, we are born who we are. Uh, you, you can't stop being an esper. Unless you can. And so I, I like that this, it parallels that idea of we are going to try, we're going to make this attempt to take our fate in our own hands. But for a lot of people, especially in the real world, if you are born to poverty, the avenues to escape poverty are extraordinarily difficult. And often predetermined. 
So then we get another quick little FMV of the train descending back into the slums. It arrives at a station, our characters hop off. If you choose to, you can talk to the train man, as I've named him. <laughs> and it's interesting. He'll, he'll give you a little line that's some foreshadowing, but again, I think also just deepens the world that you're in. He says, you know, I've seen a lot, love and loss, but it doesn't get to me. Not anymore. And he says, there's an invisible rail between me and the passengers. And I think that's just an interesting line to give a guy who's standing there and basically his job is to run this train. And one of the things that he sees on a daily basis is people being reunited with loved ones or maybe people learning that they'll not ever be reunited with loved ones. And he seems to have become kind of numb to it. And it's just interesting little thing. And you can walk right by it and never get that line of dialogue. So Barrett tells the whole group, all right, great job. The next explosion is going to be even bigger. We'll meet you back at the base. You can walk a certain way with Cloud if you want, where a non-player character will be checking out the pillar that holds up the plate. And you can kind of look up and see the size and scope of it. And if this is not your first time playing it, you will be haunted by what will happen here later. And then there are a couple of children playing in the street because that's all there is to do. Really dirty neighborhood. Everything is just knocked over and like the houses are made of reappropriated scraps. Really, you know, just grungy looking place. And you can go and talk to these kids. Again, if you don't, you won't get this. And I didn't have this hit home for me as a kid. But if you go and talk to these two children, the first one will say, hey, that big explosion, I bet it did about a billion gill worth of damage. A lot of innocent people got killed, too. If the explosion had been in the middle of the night, that would have been one thing. At least the people could have gone in their sleep. I hadn't realized that we had killed innocent people, and that's kind of heavy. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. It also, if you're looking for it, gives you some information about people who work for Shinra and in their reactors apparently have to live there. I mean, guards working at night is one thing, but if there's people in their sleep... Yeah, I would suggest there's dormitories on campus, perhaps. Um... Talk about being stuck on a predetermined rail. Yeah, jeez. I like my job, but I would not want to live there. And then even more heartbreaking after getting this information, the other kid will say, Avalanche is so cool. <laughs> yep. Maybe teaching the next generation that it's okay to blow up people you disagree with. This is a tough question, and, and we'll get into it, I think, a little bit more. And I, and I think the remake is going to get into it a lot more because the game i think kind of glosses over it at a certain point the original game uh, and kind of gives us bigger fish to fry right but the moral consequences of doing this uh, you know they don't say how many innocent people were killed you don't see it it happens off screen and and there's a comment to be made there about you know would you walk through the reactor and cut down 
people working there all, with yeah, cloud? All the engineers and stuff? No. Yeah. Right. But you press a button, and this is, again, a comment. Here's a cyberpunk trope and, and a question about technology. If you can press a button from far away and you don't have to see their faces, does that make it more okay? Yeah. There's a, a really interesting episode of the original Star Trek where they come upon a planet where they had there's like basically two factions on this entire planet and they've been at war forever but they no longer actually fight the war they have their computers simulate the war and then uh instead of you know actually destroying things with missiles and whatnot anybody who would have died in an attack is made to report to a place where they will be euthanized at which point captain kirk and the the crew of the enterprise says i'm sorry what now <laughs> beg your pardon uh, and then we have that whole conversation again of you know well we've we've made war cleaner it's nicer it's simpler this way but i'm not sure that is any less horrifying and i'm not sure that just because we are the heroes here just because we are the rebels fighting the empire that you know killing a bunch of engineers even if i didn't do it with my sword doesn't mean that it was better or okay Right. So we'll table that for now, because as we're talking to these kids, Barrett goes flying into a nearby bar, fires off his gun, and all of these people come filing out. All right. <laughs> That's one way to do it. You can, if you want, go and talk to these other guys who are just getting absolutely blitzed in the middle of the street. In fact, they use that word. Uh, but uh, yeah, you head to the bar. Uh, very clearly, that's where you're supposed to go. You'll come to know this is called the Seventh Heaven, or just Seventh Heaven. No, the. <laughs> there is weird writing over the top of it, though, that appears to say C-Y-T-E-R, if it's supposed to be in English at all. No idea what that is. It's just weird neon writing. Again, everything in this world visually is just a bit off, uh, but in a really purposeful and creative way. As you enter the bar as Cloud, you will hear and see a little girl in a pink dress yell out, Papa! Yeah. to learn is Tifa, will utter her first line of dialogue, which is, Marlene, aren't you going to say anything to Cloud? <laughs> uh, and Marlene does not. She goes she does and, not and, say and hides. <laughs> yeah, no. She goes and hides behind Tifa. And then Tifa wants to know if Cloud has been fighting with Barrett. And Tifa says, he's always pushing people around and you've been in fights ever since you were little. Hang on a second. That says a lot. So she has known Cloud since they were little, which is cool. And he's always been getting in fights. Why has he always been getting in fights? We don't get an explanation here. But usually in these sorts of stories, the reason kids might always be getting in fights is either they're picking on the kids or they're getting picked on. Indeed. 
But at this point, we aren't given much time to ponder how well she knows Cloud. And instead, again, we get the opportunity to name her here, Tifa Lockhart. Beautiful young woman, the white tank top and overalls and leather shorts and long black hair and red or brown eyes, depending on what you're looking at. Fighter gloves. She owns a bar. She's a badass chick. She's a lot of people's favorite Final Fantasy character of all time. I totally understand why that would be the case. Everything about Tifa is straight dope. And and this is our introduction to her. She gets on Cloud right away for fighting with Barrett, but immediately her focus goes to something that Cloud has in his hand, something he'd purchased from a flower girl on the street. She goes, flowers? How nice. Yeah. Here's this stoic badass, and he's brought flowers. Who did he bring them for, Drew? Yeah, so she asks <laughs> for me, and you can choose either to give them to Tifa or to give them to Marlene. I always give them to Marlene. Yeah. I give them to the little girl. That's, look. That's the right yeah. call, I would think. Yeah. Smart play. It doesn't seem to curry any favor, though. She takes the flower, but Barrett just storms in <laughs> as you try to leave. He wants to know where Marlene got the flower. She says, hey, Cloud gave it to me. He says, all right. And then he goes over to the pinball machine in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> which is, of course, used as a secret compartment to get down to the basement where they do all their dirty rebellion work. <laughs> dirty, dirty rebels. Then Barrett asks Cloud a question, which I think gets back to your point earlier. He wants to know, did we fight anyone from Soldier today? Cloud says, no. You'd have known. Cocky bastard. Yeah. He's just... yeah. It looks like, you, you said we don't want to do this too much, but it looks like from the uh, trailer for the remake that the answer is going to be yes in the remake. Yeah, actually that person. Yeah, depending on which bombing mission it was, right, if it was the first one. But yeah, there's going to be more soldier people. That's right, for sure. Right, And then as Cloud is kind of giving his cocky answer about how awesome soldier is, and you'd know... Barrett's like, hold on a minute. You don't have to go overboard. Are you still loving on the Shinra? And Cloud goes, look, I don't care about Shinra. I don't care about Avalanche. I don't care about the planet. And that's when Tifa interjects and, and gives the mission statement again. And she says, the planet's dying. Slowly but surely, it's dying. Someone has to do something. Are you just going to ignore your childhood friend? And then, yeah. again, Cloud is given a choice between how can you say that, get really defensive, or apologize? And the right choice is? Apologizing? I should think so, yeah. If you have the choice between being defensive and apologizing, apologizing is generally correct. I would have to agree then. And then, Tifa says, you forgot about the promise, too. Cloud says, promise? Yeah, we're, th this is a hint of many, many things. The ones that jump to mind for me are, one, Cloud's memory. There might be some issues there. And number two, that these two knew each other as kids. And uh, promises, especially in Final Fantasy, are very important. Very important. I love this rhetorically as a setup, too, because we have so many questions about Cloud. We don't know about 
his past. We don't really understand any kind of motivations yet. That there's this person that links him from being a child to whoever he is now. She just makes us want to know more about who these people are and what they've done in this world and how they came to be at this moment. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. While you can stream the podcast for free at archive.org or on Patreon, If you want an embed code that you can use to download the podcast automatically into your favorite app, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we make a promise, meet the president, and fall through the roof of a church.